0: following is a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more information on Shaw or our teaching resources, visit www.shore.org.nz. So this morning we're in Exodus chapter 19 and I've uh, titled it Date of Birth. And it kind of got me thinking about dates of birth. Uh, specifically with some of my children. I see Eleanor here this morning, who was the midwife for my oldest child. And then, of course, Nate, who was on guitar. I remember in Christchurch when he was down there with us, and he came along to our house to pick up our oldest child when Molly was about to go into labor and found her in labor. And uh, I was there too, so it's okay. But I just found her in the midst of giving birth to our second child on the kitchen floor. So that was nice and awkward for him. But um, but this is a story today of a different type of birth, a very important moment in the nation of Israel's history. Uh, as Reuben said, this is a very pivotal moment in Exodus chapter 19. In fact, if you saw the summary video that he showed a couple of weeks ago uh, that kind of summarized the book of Exodus, you had the first 18 chapters and then the second half of the book, but in the middle was this chapter, chapter 19. This becomes the moment that is pivotal and important, not just for the Exodus story, but for the entire nation of Israel, for the people of God, for the Bible itself. See, this is the day, a couple of months after leaving the oppressive grasp of the Egyptian empire, the people of God arrive at the mountain of God, Mount Sinai, and they are born Into their own nation. They have their date of birth. It's by no means the beginning of the story, of course. I mean, after all, we're halfway through the second book of the Bible already. But it's the moment that everything comes together for the nation of Israel. And if I can take the analogy of childbirth way too far, I'd like to take you on a bit of a journey here. See, it all starts, I believe, back in Genesis chapter 12. God gives this promise. To Abraham, who would become Abraham, he says, I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. See, this right here is the moment of conception for the nation of Israel. This is where it begins. And then what follows is a 400-year pregnancy period. And I know some pregnant people, possibly here in this room right now, might feel like they've been pregnant for 400 years too. But this is a 400-year pregnancy as the nation fetus develops and grows. It becomes bigger. It becomes more numerous until a point in Egypt where there's millions of people, certainly big enough to become its own nation, but not quite there yet. They have no identity. They have no land. They have no nationhood. They're simply slaves. And then the big moment comes. God's midwife of choice, a Midian farmer and a former Egyptian prince named Moses, calls him in the burning bush and sends him down into Egypt to bring his baby to him, to help deliver his baby. And so begins a painful and exciting process that ends right here in chapter 19. With the birth of a brand new, fully legitimate nation. Ready to take its place, not just among the other nations, but at the head. The crown jewel of all of God's creation. So let's have a look at the passage, shall we? Starting in verse 1. On the first day of the third month after the Israelites left Egypt, on that very day, they came to the desert of Sinai. After they set out from Rephidim, they entered the desert of Sinai, and Israel camped there in the desert in front of the mountain. It's in the desert, by the way. I don't know if you caught that or not. Then Moses went up to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain and said, This is what you are to say to the descendants of Jacob, and what you were to tell the people of Israel. Verse 4. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt, and how I carried you on eagles' wings, and brought you to myself. Now, if you fully obey me and keep my covenant, then out of all of the nations, you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you are to speak to the Israelites. So Moses went back and summoned the elders of the people and set before them all of the words the Lord had commanded him to speak. The people all responded together, we will do everything the Lord has said. So Moses brought their answer back to the Lord. Now, what really strikes me about this passage, especially when you compare it to the rest of the book of Exodus and, and some of the other early books in the Old Testament, is how much stuff he just packs into eight small verses. You know, I mean, there is just so much here, so much significance, so much To to unpack and deal with, I I mean, where do you even begin in a passage like this? There's so much going on, it's so important to the history, and we're really only going to scratch the surface this morning. I recommend diving in and and reading some commentaries or reading some more material on this passage because there's a lot of great stuff here. But where I want to begin is the beginning of this passage, obviously, which is also coincidentally and fittingly the end. This is the end of the story of Exodus. Now I know, we're only halfway through the book and there are many messages left to go. We're not done with the series quite yet. But this is the end of the story of the Exodus. The time where they came out of Egypt. The rescue of God's people. Let's rewind to uh, chapter 3 again. uh, Where God is calling Moses... And he tells him to pack his bags and go on a big adventure. And he says these words to him. In verse 12, he says, I will be with you, and this will be the sign to you that it is I who have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship God on this mountain. This is that moment. They have arrived back at this mountain. And what a moment it must have been for Moses. Can you imagine? Everything that he's gone through, he is here. This is it. This is the end of the mission. There are more missions for him, as he will discover. But this is the end of what God has called him to do from the burning bush. It has come full circle, literally. Full circle, back to the point where it started. The people are free. And his mission was a success. Must have been an amazing moment. Of course, it wasn't just the end of um, Moses' mission as well. This was the end of the time that the people of God, their identity of themselves up until this point, this is where it ends. Up until this point, they're a ragtag group of slaves and fugitives. But at this point, at at the foot of this mountain, they become a nation. Their own date of birth. So the first two verses, they set the stage here, and then God gives Moses this message to give to the people. It's a beautiful message. I want to jump in again at verse 4. He says, You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt, how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. It's a beautiful, beautiful language, isn't it? But what strikes me here, I find interesting the first words that he says. He says, you yourselves have seen. See, God has revealed himself to the people. He's revealed himself in some pretty dramatic ways over the last 19 chapters, hasn't he? I mean, there's the burning bush, which that was just for Moses, but you've got the plagues, you've got the parting of the Red Sea, the destruction of the Egyptian army. All of this stuff that God has done has proven to the people that, they, that God is sovereign, He is powerful, He cares for His people. And so like a courtroom drama, God is calling the Israelite people themselves to be witnesses. They're calling witness to this event. You've seen it yourself. And their testimony, their self-testimony, becomes the bedrock for their obedience and their, for, for their faith in this God. And so based on this, Based on his actions, what he has done for them, God presents his covenant, his proposal of sorts for his people. He says in verse 5, Now if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all of the nations you will be my treasured possession. That's not a bad promise, is it? You know, I've, I've, I've dealt with a few contracts in my lifetime and, and, you know, I've been paid for jobs. Nothing quite like this, though. Nothing quite like this. God will make them a special people. Out of all of the nations, they will be His. And do you hear the possessive personal language? And I say possessive, not in a negative way. But they are His. This is not just... A nature of, all right, here you are, you're the people I've chosen, you are going to be the nation, and you're going to go forward. This is not just setting the logistics forward for his plan for salvation. This is not just saying, all right, here's the genealogy that I'm setting up for Jesus, boom, 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 here it all lays out. This is intensely personal. Forgot. Go back to verse 4 where he says, I have brought you out on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. There's such a strong language of your mind. This is personal to Him. And of course it is. This whole story, this whole book that we're looking at, the Bible, is an intensely personal story, not just of God saving people, but of God reconciling His children to Himself. This image in the Gospels where Jesus says, that like chicks gathered under His wings, He wants to gather us in an embrace. It is a very motherly sort of language, as well as fatherly sort of language. And it's this idea that God just cares deeply, and then everything that happens along this journey, everything that brings us to the point where we are in His family again is personal to Him. The setting up of the nation of Israel is not logistical. This is not just the group of people that are going to be there when Jesus is born. To God, this is the family into whom he is entrusting his son. This is deeply personal for him. And for the Israelites, well, they've just escaped the clutches of this huge Egyptian empire. So the idea of becoming the top dogs in the neighborhood probably sounds pretty good to them too. You know, they've been beat down, they've been flogged, they've been worked to the bone. And now, they are going to be not just one of the nations, but the nation. The one in God's almighty presence in the world. You know, all of these other nations, they can just eat it because they are now the big dogs, the big cheese. And you can forgive them for that sort of relief they must have felt, vindication even after everything that's happened to them. And so with all of this emotion floating around and and just an intense sort of emotive feeling that goes along with this promise, we kind of sometimes forget the most important word in this sentence. In fact, the smallest word in this verse. If. If. If you obey me fully, if you keep my covenants, if you keep the commandments that he's going to lay out to them over the course of the rest of the book of Exodus, if you do this. See, this is a contract language, isn't it? If you do this, if you obey me, I will give you all of this. If you do not obey me, all bets are off. No nationhood, no treasured possession, no special standing amongst all of the nations. That's it, nothing. And I mention this because it takes less than 15 chapters for the Israelites to break the covenant, to break the contract and build and do one of the worst things that God laid out, worshiping another God. And a very, very brief survey through the Old Testament shows that they are constantly rebelling against God, constantly breaking the contract, constantly going against Him. They worship other gods. They find protection in other nations instead of God. They forget all of His uh, special days of, of remembrance. They basically become generally behave like a pack of insubordinate and ungrateful spoiled brats or in other words teenagers (laughs) yeah i was a teenager so that's how i know so it's not at all surprising then that we go through the old Testament, and we find again and again and again god comes down to his people and he punishes them plagues He gives them plagues. He he kills off certain portions of the people. He lets other armies come in and raid them and ransack them. He even lets the Babylonians Babylonians crush the whole nation and take them off into exile. You would expect that, wouldn't you? Because that's what he said he would do. Except that's not what he said he would do, is it? See, that's the surprising part. The surprising part about this contract is even though he laid it out very carefully, he never enacts the if. He never enacts the if. He said, if they do not obey me fully, that's it. That was the agreement. All bets are off. No nationhood, no nothing. And yet God never completely abandons his people. He never abandons them. He never fully punishes them the way that he should or could based on this contract. He always keeps their nationhood alive. He always keeps the promise of blessing alive. This again shows how much the story means to God. How much he wants salvation to happen. How much he wants us to be reconciled to Him. So much that while the people continue to disobey Him, He remains faithful. When the people are full of you-know-what, He remains faithful over and above His promises. Over and above His promises. And you know what? That attitude of God has never been more beautifully or more powerfully articulated than in the image of a man hanging on a cross. A God worthy of praise, methinks. Of course, God's not finished in verse 5. There's more to the covenant here. And in verse 6, we realize that while this is the end of the Exodus story, this is really just the beginning of the story of the Israelites. And he says, Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Now, originally, when I was writing this, I really wanted to get into this verse, especially the kingdom of priests part, because there's so much to unpack there. And it really illustrates the role that Israel is going to play in relation to the other nations. But I th- figured if I did that, we'd probably be here for a bit too long. <laughs> and also, I don't want to just move past what we've just talked about. I don't want to move past the way that God has, the way He deals with us, the way He deals with His promises. I don't want to just forget that and move on to something else. So here's what I'm going to do. On October 11th, I am preaching again on um, Exodus chapter 28 on the role of the priests. And so, with permission from Reuben, I'm just going to kind of cut this little verse out and I'm going to thumbtack it to that message, okay? So on October 11th, I'll come back and I'll deal with this verse, especially in relation to the way the priests worked in the nation of Israel. It will make sense, don't worry, so we'll just put that away for now. And so we're left here to the last couple of verses in Exodus chapter 19, verse 7 and 8. So Moses went back and summoned the elders of the people and set before them all of the words the Lord had commanded him to speak. The people all responded together, We will do everything the Lord has said. Scoff, scoff. So Moses brought their answer back to God. All right, so there's a couple of fairly innocuous sort of verses here. And again, we tend to kind of scoff at them. But really this illustrates exactly how this applies to us today. This is the key to where this passage envelops our lives. You see, if the covenant that God provided here is a contract of sorts, then this this is the signature. This is the moment that the Israelites chose to become, to enter into that contract, to enter into the covenant with God. I'm not sure what would have happened if they had said no. I mean, it's not the sort of contract you, you, you refuse. But at the same time, there's just an element here that they had a choice. Yes, God was the one who did all of the work. He was the one who vanquished the Egyptians. He was the one who brought them out of Egypt. He was the one who gathered them here at the foot of this mountain. He didn't have to do, he didn't have to give them a choice. But it seems a little bit like he does because he wants them to choose And that's the choice that brings us here today. You see, the story of the Exodus is actually a foreshadowing of the story that God brings all of us on. Jesus, like Moses, goes and he vanquishes Satan. He defeats death and he saves us from the slavery that we are experiencing to our own sin, to our own mistakes to our own separation from God. He saves us from that. And then he carries us on this journey. We've all been on this journey. We're on different parts of this journey. This journey may involve many people influencing our lives. This journey may have involved a big moment of realization about who God is. However he does it, he brings us on this journey to himself. And he gathers us at the foot of his mountain and he offers us this promise, this new covenant, this new contract. Except the wonderful thing about this new covenant is that there's no if anymore. There is nothing that we have to do in order to get the promise that he's given us of eternal life, of being part of his family. He's taking care of the if. All that we need now is a signature, decision. All we need now is to decide, are we in? I don't know all of you here. I don't know your journeys. I don't know where you are. Maybe you're part of this journey. You're finding your way to God. Maybe you're not even really looking for Him. I guarantee you He's looking for you. Maybe you've come to the mountain, you have accepted him, and you're on that next journey through the wilderness to the promised land. But if you are here at the foot of the mountain, if you are here wondering, is God calling me to be a part of his family? We would love to talk that through with you. Come and talk to Reuben. You can talk to myself. We would love to talk to you. For the rest of us, maybe we've already made that decision. So as we sit here at the foot of the mountain, maybe we encourage others to make that decision, but there's something else that we can do. I want to go back to verse 4 again. Because you yourselves have seen what God has done to Satan. How he brought you up Out of your misery, out of your darkness, out of your separation from God, He brought you up out like an eagle's wings. And He brought you to Himself. He's given you hope, He's given you purpose, an identity, a date of birth. What else can we do but praise a God like that? What else can we do but worship Him? Band's going to come up. In fact, band, you can come up now. We're going to sing one or two more songs, depending on how woefully over time I've gone. And as we sing those songs, I just... I want us to contemplate our date of birth. The moment God rescued us from our sin, from our slavery. I know there's a lot going on in our lives. I don't want to belittle anything that you are going through, but maybe today, maybe that just gets put aside, just for a little while. Maybe we let the story of what God has done overshadow everything else. Maybe this is not a time to dwell on the dark things in our lives, but maybe this is a time to look up and see the light that God is shining on us, to look up the mountainside, to see the peak where God's presence is and how He has invited us to join Him. He has saved us. He has brought us out on eagle's wings. He has brought us to Himself. And despite anything else that's going on, He's rescued us, and we are safe in His hands. Absolutely safe in His hands. So together we say, Hosanna. Glory to the God who saved us. Glory to the God who rescued us from sin. Hosanna to the one who hung on the cross and bled and died so that we might live. Praise be to that God.